you might be wondering, why are we doing Obadiah today, uh, particularly in the lead up to Christmas? Obadiah is one of those seemingly obscure books in the Bible. Um, so why would we be doing it? Well, there's two reasons. Number one, because I made a promise to Isaac G earlier in the year. He said to me, I can't remember when, but it might have been six months ago, uh, Mr. Powell, we've, I've never heard a sermon on Obadiah. Can you please, before the end of the year, preach on Obadiah? So I blame you, <laughs> Isaac. Um, but there's another reason why we're doing it, and it's because, and I don't mean this tritely, it's God's word. Um, in the book of uh, Luke, uh, the Lord Jesus had risen again from the dead, and he was walking along the road to Emmaus, and people were there, and they didn't recognize him, even though he'd risen from the dead. Uh, and then it says this, beginning with Moses and the prophets, the Lord Jesus explained how they all pointed to him. And, and can I just say to us today, this is not just God's word, but it points us to Jesus. Uh, in fact, there's a, there's a statement that is written on most pulpits uh, across America. It's only seen by the preacher. Uh, you can't see it because of the way that lecterns are tilted. But it just has simply the words, sir, we would see Jesus. And can I say to us that that's what should be the case every time we come to church and every time that we open God's word. No matter where we are in the scriptures, sir, we would see Jesus. Uh, and, uh, and I hope and pray that you will see Jesus in a very surprising and indeed powerful way today as we look at God's word. So we're going to read from verse 1 to the end of the chapter. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the Sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise and let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. And you will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like, an, like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged, all your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, men of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, O Timon, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. 
because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof, while strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor look down on them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they'd never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance. The house of Jacob will be a fire. The house of Joseph, a flame. The house of Esau will be stubble. And they will set it on fire and consume it. There will be no survivors from the house of Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau and the people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelites, Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Shepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Let's pray. Father, what a great delight and privilege it is to come and meet together as your people. We join together as we heard before with thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. We come before your throne, the heavenly Jerusalem, the real, eternal Mount Zion. And we come to worship the King, the Lord Jesus. Lord, as we sit at your feet now, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak to us through your word. That, Father, you would strengthen our faith. And that, Lord, you would give us the grace to trust and obey. And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. The name Obadiah simply means the servant of the Lord. And while it's difficult to be certain 
um, he probably received this prophetic vision in about the 8th century BC, which significantly would make Obadiah a contemporary with the major prophet Isaiah. I'm hoping to do a seven to eight part series on the book of Isaiah at some point next year. But both men not only talk about the servant of the Lord, though, they explicitly connect him to the nation of Edom. If you have your Bibles there, turn over to Isaiah 63 for a minute and I'll show you what I mean. Because I think this will really blow you away as um, how it depicts the Lord Jesus in his awesome majesty. In particular, his work of redemption as both saviour and judge. Okay then, so Isaiah 63, and I'm just going to read to you from verse 1 through to verse 6. It says, Who is this coming from Edom, from Bosrah, with his garments stained crimson? Who is this, robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why are your garments red, like those of one treading the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and the year of my redemption has come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm worked salvation for me and my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger. In my wrath, I made them drunk. And poured their blood on the ground. Isn't that such an awe-inspiring and even terrifying description of the Lord Jesus? He truly is worthy of honour and glory and praise. He is rightly to be feared and to be worshipped. For there is none who can stand before him. I initially thought about ending the sermon this morning by referencing this particular passage. But I wanted to begin this morning with the ending. Because it's only when you see the Lord Jesus for who he really is and what he is going to do that you can truly understand the relevance of Obadiah's message for today. For as Christians, we worship a God who is both mighty to save and powerful to judge, who will one day come again in glorious risen power to slaughter all those who remain in rebellion against him. You see, Edom was the place where the descendants of Esau had historically settled. And they lived right next door to the Israelites. If you know your Bible well, then you remember that the patriarch Isaac, as Michael helpfully explained, had two sons, Jacob and Esau. The descendants of Jacob were Israel. The descendants of Esau were Edom. Now, the Lord had sovereignly chosen Jacob to receive his blessings. 
whereas Esau was rejected. Which was completely appropriate because Esau had despised his birthright and exchanged it for a single bowl of red, of red soup or stew. Then later on, when Esau tried to regain um, his inheritance rights, he couldn't. And so the descendants of Esau basically held a grudge against the descendants of Jacob from that point on. Edom and Israel were always at odds with one another. There are lots of different passages in the Bible which reference this kind of sibling rivalry. One of the most striking is found in Amos chapter 1, verse 11. Amos chapter 1, verse 11, it says, uh, it's where the Lord roars like a ravenous lion, saying, for three sins of Edom, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because he pursued his brother with the sword, stifling compassion, because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked. And then he goes on to say, I will send fire upon Teman and that will consume the fortresses of Bosra. And that's precisely the situation that the book of Obadiah addresses. It's un the unfolding of the divine reasoning for God's judgment upon the nation of Edom. And at the heart of their problem is pride. And pride in three specific things. Pride in their wealth. Pride, secondly, in their wisdom. And finally, pride in their warriors, or in other words, their own military strength. And because of their pride in these three things... They look down upon the Israelites, especially when they experience God's just judgment at the hand of the Babylonians. In fact, not only did they delight in their destruction, but they also participated in their downfall. They joined with Israel's enemies in ransacking their riches and cutting down their citizens as they fled. They were brutal. There's a biblical truth here which is timeless in its application. And it's articulated, if you're taking notes, Proverbs chapter 24, verses 17 to 18. It says this, Do not gloat when your enemy falls. When he stumbles, do not let your heart rejoice, or the Lord will see and disapprove and turn his wrath away from him. The people of Edom had not only delighted in Israel's judgment, though, they had fully joined in. We don't take the, pride, the sin of pride anywhere near as seriously as we should. For instance, if I said to you, oh, so-and-so is a nice Christian a woman, woman, but a bit proud, you wouldn't really think anything of it. After all, we're all a little bit proud, aren't we? But what if I said, oh, so-and-so is a lovely Christian lady, but, well, she's also a thief. You'd rightly be alarmed, wouldn't you? How can you say that they're a Christian and also somebody who routinely steals things? 
The two things just don't go together. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis has a great chapter on the vice of pride, which he refers to as the great sin. The great sin. And in it, he writes this. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Other vices may sometimes bring people together. You may find good fellowship and jokes and friendliness among drunken people or unchaste people. But pride always means enmity. Lewis says it is enmity. And not only enmity between man and man, but enmity to God. Now, what Lewis is saying here is spot on. Pride is at the heart of all enmity and therefore division. Just take a look again at what the Lord himself says to them in verse 3. Because it really goes to the heart as to why they are being judged. God says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home in the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down? There are really only a couple of places in the world which I would like to visit. And one of them is the city of Petra, which is in the region of Edom. Every time I see a picture of those old buildings cut out of the rock, I just find them so beautiful and so fascinating. But that's what our passage is talking about. Due to the geographical layout of Petra, it is said that the whole city could be adequately defended by 12 men. And because of that, the Edomites were obviously overconfident in their own military strength. Who could bring us down? We only need a dozen people to protect the whole city. But they were not only strong, they were also wealthy as well as wise. I just note how God himself refers to the wise men of Edom in verse 8. In fact, Job and his friend Eliphaz are both said to have come from the land of Edom. Which means it was obviously a place of great knowledge and of great learning. But because they were also situated along what was called in the ancient world the King's Highway, they were also exceedingly rich. This is because they exacted tolls on the people as they travelled along it. In fact, the book of Numbers records how the Edomites had refused the Israelites to travel through their land when they had escaped from Egypt and were on their way to the Promised Land. You can read all about it in Numbers chapter 20. But even though Moses had offered to pay for any water that their livestock or they themselves would drink as they were passing through, and they only just wanted to pass through, the Edomites refused. Indeed, they even came out with a large and powerful army just to make sure they took the long way around. And as a result, God's people had to travel an enormous extra distance to make it um, to the Promised Land. The Edomites were incredibly proud. And they'd been like that from the very beginning. 
But now the Lord was going to bring his righteous judgment down upon their heads. In his kindness, he'd given them more than ample time to repent. But now they were going to be completely destroyed. That's the first point. It announces Edom's judgment. The second section follows on from this and it enunciates why this act of judgment was so necessary. Sometimes people sort of balk at this and think, well, maybe God's just a little bit of a hothead or maybe he's overreacting. Nothing but the case. God is being perfectly wise and just. James Montgomery Boyce labels um, the sin of the Edomites as unbrotherliness. It sounds quite quaint, as almost to be silly. But can I just say, as with the sin of pride, it isn't. It's utterly wicked. The Lord himself describes it like this in verse 11. On the day you stood aloof with, while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. What did the Edomites do exactly which was so wrong? Well, it's that they did nothing. It's that they stood aloof and they watched it all unfold. At least that's what they did initially. Then when they found out that their brother's situation couldn't be overturned, they themselves joined in. Sometimes, you know, people, and I know this happens a lot even in our own family. I'm sure it's happened in yours. Somebody says, you know, you ask, where's your brother? Where's your sister? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. The answer is always yes. You are his keeper. Because the opposite is the sin of unbrotherliness. It's that you don't care. Verses 13 and 14 describe how they seized their wealth and cut down their fugitives. In short, when they saw that there was going to be no opposition, they joined in with the looting and the killing. And they delighted in doing so. Now let me stop and ask you a question. What do you think the Lord should do in response to such a grossly immoral situation? Should the Lord do nothing? Do you think he should judge people for committing such atrocities? Do you think he should unleash the full measure of his own holy wrath and judgment? Well, be assured of this. What happened to Edom is a foretaste of what God is going to do to all the nations of the earth. You see, from verse 15 on, God's judgment is expanded to include everyone. Obadiah sees in his vision, the day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. As they themselves have drunk, God will make them drink and drink and drink until they pass out. As if they had never been, they will drink themselves silly. 
Just take a look um, in particular, though, at what the Lord says in verses 17 and 18. Because in the future, there will be both salvation as well as judgment. And both things will involve the fire of the Lord. It will mean either purification for those who believe and are saved or judgment for those who continue in rebellion. Obadiah says, but on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy and the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance. That is, there will come a day when the people of God will have their fortunes restored. Where what was taken from them in judgment will be returned to them in salvation. And those whom Edom thought they had destroyed will themselves become the instrument of judgment in the Lord's hands. As Obadiah says in verse 18, the house of Jacob will be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame. The house of Esau will be stubble and they will set it on fire and consume it and there will be no survivors from the house of Esau. Now, it's difficult to relay to you how impossible this would have seemed when Obadiah first relayed this message. How could Edom be destroyed? They were so wealthy. They were so wise. They were so strong. What's more, you're saying the destruction is going to come from Israel? The very people they just ransacked and killed? And anybody that did survive got sent off into exile? You've got to be kidding. How could such a thing like that occur? Because you're saying that these people who live in an impenetrable fortress, literally cut out of the rock, are themselves going to be completely destroyed? Well, that's just so unlikely and even impossible that maybe it's you that has rocks in your head. But that is, as we all know now, precisely what happened. What God said what Obadiah saw actually occurred. Now, before this morning, who here really gives any thought to the Edomites? We don't, do we? Because exactly as the Lord God Almighty said would occur has happened. They no longer exist. The nation of Edom, famous in the ancient world, but knowledge of their civilization was lost for about a thousand years until, get this right, this is one of these quirky stories of history. In 1812, the Swiss uh, explorer Johann Ludwig Burkhardt, who had heard rumors of the fabled city of Petra, and he decided to see if it was true. Was it still there? Was the Bible, what the Bible said actually true? So knowing that basically only Arab sheep herders lived in the area um, and they'd never allow him to go into the city, he came up with a clever ruse. He told them that he wanted to make a sacred vow of sacrificing a goat at the tomb of Aaron, you know, the famous high priest of Israel. 
Aaron's tomb was located on a mountain that rose just above the city of Petra. And because the Arab guides could make no objection to him making, um, uh, well, to having a, a vow so holy as that, they allowed Burkhardt to enter. And the rest, as they say, is history. It's the final line of the book of Obadiah, though, which I think is the most intriguing and, can I say, relevant for us. Deliverers, or literally saviors, will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Israel, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Now, just precisely when and how is this going to occur? I mean, the direct physical descendants of Jacob have never accomplished that. So it can't be referring to a strict, literal fulfilment of those words. The key, I think, is found in verse 15. And it's to grasp the full extent of who is included in the day of the Lord. Because it clearly involves all nations. As we saw in our New Testament reading from the book of Hebrews, the Mount Zion, which Obadiah is referring to here, is not to be found on earth, but in heaven. And the people of God are no longer the physical, literal descendants of Abraham, but you and me, those who have faith in Jesus as the Christ. What I'm saying is, Um, So important. And I want you to turn back and look again with me at what it says in Hebrews chapter 12. We're not going to read it all, but I just want you to focus on what it says from verses 22 to the end, right? It says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. Brothers and sisters, that's what we have already done this morning. You thought you were meeting in the Greek club in North Hobart, but actually you and I were participating in the heavenly assembly with thousands upon thousands of angels at Mount Zion. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. (coughs) Can you see how there are two cities? In the Old Testament, it was... Jerusalem and Mount Zion here on earth. But in the New Testament with the coming of Jesus, the truth has expanded to become truly universal in scope. It means that right now, as we sit in North Hobart, we are joining with brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world and we're worshipping the Lord in heaven of approaching the heavenly throne and entering into the cosmic temple. It's just absolutely awe-inspiring and thrilling. Thousands upon thousands of angels are joining with us and they're singing the praises of Jesus. It doesn't matter where you are on earth, that's happening as we meet. The book of Revelation tells us that Every creature in heaven is singing right now. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. Why? 
Well, because as the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us, you have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirit, the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Friends, we've come to know Jesus as our saviour. We have received the salvation that is ours through the sacrificial act of atonement at the cross. It's the fact that his blood has been sprinkled over our sins and we are forgiven. As it says earlier in the book of Hebrews, we have been freed from him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. And as such, we have nothing and no one to fear. Won't you cry out to him for such a great act of deliverance? But with that said, I also need to warn you. Don't be like Esau and his descendants. Don't be proud and think that you don't need Jesus and what he offers as an inheritance. The writer of Hebrews says, don't be bitter, godless, or sexually immoral, and so sell your spiritual birthright. Esau did that for a bowl of red soup. His name, Edom, or Esau, means red. And so it was obviously something which aligned to his own personality or taste. But you and I can make the same mistake of exchanging what you cannot see for something you can. Maybe it's a boat, or a person, or a job, or a career, or a meal. Just like Esau, we can all exchange the salvation of Jesus for something else. Have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? Have you had all your sins forgiven and your guilt atoned? If not, then come to Jesus today and receive what only he alone can provide. The elders and I had uh, a planning day earlier this year and it was a real highlight. We spent a good amount of time reading God's word as well as in prayer. One of the things we unanimously agreed upon though and this was a hard thing to realise, is that we'd become distracted as a church. That we'd allowed secondary things to overtake the primacy of the gospel. That we'd lost sight of our original vision to win, build, send. And for this, we all agreed we needed to repent We needed to ask for God's forgiveness and for the power of his spirit to recommit our lives to the task of preaching his glorious gospel. It's something that I wrestle with every single week. I have to fight and wrestle with all of God's strength to preach Christ. To exalt the risen and ascended Lord Jesus and to make much of him. 
Because it's also easy to be distracted and to focus on something else. As the old saying goes, the good is the greatest enemy to the best. There's lots of good things to be preaching. There's only one thing that's the best thing. John Carson, without doubt, one of the most influential evangelical theologians of the 20th and 21st centuries, once said, he found students didn't remember what he said was important. (laughs) They remembered what he was passionate about. And that is so true. It doesn't matter what you and I say is important. What matters is what we champion in our hearts. It's what we're passionate about. Is it the gospel of Christ? Is it the glories of Calvary? Or is it something else? My brothers and sisters in Christ, can you see how Satan seduces us to add to the gospel? It's what many people refer to as gospel plus. For the devil's strategy is not so much to deny the gospel as to overshadow it with something else. What we really need most of all then, spiritually, is a great reset. We need to be refreshed in our love for Jesus. We need to be renewed in our commitment to be holy. Without the evidence of which we're told, no one will see the Lord. We need to humble ourselves before the Lord and so that he might lift us up. It might seem like a strange part of the Bible to look at. But I'm glad that Isaac recommended it or asked for it. Because the book of Obadiah does all of this in a powerful and timeless way. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, we are the deliverers who are approaching Mount Zion. Verse 21 is talking about you and me. We're the ones who now rule over the rebellious mountains of Esau, of those from every nation who set themselves up against the knowledge and love of God. Because as the Lord Jesus Christ himself says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. So... Go tell it on the mountain. Tell everyone you meet of the victory of Jesus and of his salvation and deliverance that he has achieved. Pray for his kingdom to come and for every other kingdom to fall. For Jesus is Lord. Let's sing.